everyone, Kyle here. Uh, today we've got a brand new episode with Dr. Anna Radke from Miami University. Uh, we're going to be talking a little bit about sex differences uh, in mice and their vulnerability to alcohol use disorder. So it's a pretty cool episode upcoming. Yeah, so we talk about a ton of things like does drinking kill brain cells? What does a, what does a mouse bar look like? And why female mice and female humans are often under-researched in science and neuroscience. Uh, so if you're interested at all in those topics, make sure you check this out uh, and enjoy. Friends, colleagues, and rad people, welcome to another episode of Brain Buzz. We are your hosts. I'm Kyle. And I'm Drake. And today we are joined by a behavioral neuroscientist, reward and addiction researcher, director of the Reward and Addictive Disorders Lab, assistant professor of psychology at Miami University, Dr. Anna Radke. Anna, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no, thanks for coming on, Anna. And so today we're going to be talking about rats and drinking and gender differences. <laughs> Can you explain what we're going to be talking about today? Yeah. So the work I'm doing right now is examining what we call sex differences, because actually we um, mice and rats don't really have a gender. We can get into that. But sex differences in alcohol drinking behaviors, uh, primarily in mice, also in rats. And we're really interested in behaviorally what they're doing and how we can model the human condition and then trying to figure out what's going on in the brain that causes those behavioral differences. Anna, why is it exactly that we should be interested in looking at mouse models or rat models to understand this behavior? Yeah, that's a great question. The answer to that is really because the what we know about the brain in other mammals, including rats and mice, is that in many ways it's very, very similar to the human brain. So we can learn a lot from studying the behaviors of other animals, and it also gives us a tool to manipulate their brains in a way that we can't do in people. So if I can come up with a good mouse model of alcohol drinking that looks pretty similar to what humans are doing, then I can learn something probably about what's going on in the human brain. Um, because I can't, you know, open up your head and do surgeries on you to figure out what's going on in your brain. So, you know, we're using the mice as a proxy in that sense. Right. Yeah. I would prefer you didn't open up my brain to do that. <laughs> yeah. Why is it exactly, or, or why are we looking at, at mice then in terms of alcohol use? Do, do mice drink? Like if given the opportunity, will they drink like humans will? Yeah. So mice do drink. Um, and we like to call ourselves mouse bartenders sometimes. <laughs> um, most mammals will drink alcohol, although it is interesting because the mice will cut themselves off. So um, most strains that we work with will not drink themselves to you know a blackout the way that, that some humans will. Um, so they're a little more regulated in that sense than we are. Although you can create selectively bred lines of animals, so you breed them for their basically their preference for alcohol, and those animals we have got them to kind of pass out in the chamber. Wow. Um, but that's <laughs> actually unusual for the for the mice and rats. But they're still a good model because they do drink alcohol, and then their behaviors in many ways will resemble human behaviors. Um, and so we can ask some basic questions about how the reward system functions, and you know what goes wrong when somebody really can't stop drinking. Right. And so I'm curious, I mean, I'm thinking of literally bar, like 
mice sitting at a bar having drinks with their their homies. Um, obviously, that's <laughs> not the case. But how much, you know, how much are the heavyweight mice? Like, how much are they drinking? Because I'm thinking, okay, you have the pint equivalent. What's the pint mm-hmm. equivalent or, you know, five pints for, for a mouse? <laughs> yeah. So what we do is we put a bottle of usually somewhere between 10 and 20% pure ethanol in water. So like, it's not tasting good is one of the first okay. things. You know, not- <laughs> You're not doing special cocktails or anything. Right. Here. <laughs> we, we often start them out on the sugary drinks. So they're similar to humans in that sense that if you can put a little sugar in and sweeten it up, well, you'll get them going. But then yeah. we ultimately want to just look at their alcohol drinking. So we, we take that sugar out and, and we just look at alcohol and water and they, they get a bottle on their cage or we put them in an operant chamber where they can, you know, press levers and poke their nose to earn little drinks. Um, and a normal mouse of the strain we work with will get, you know, if they're binging, they'll get to the point if where like if a human had drank maybe two drinks, right? So they're not okay. actually um, binge. Like when we think of humans binging, they're not quite getting to that level. Right. And you can get these selectively bred lines that will drink more, but the kind of standard mouse will actually cut itself off before it gets to the point that it's you know, falling over. Um, right. right. Yeah. <laughs> what, what's the, uh, what's the benefits for a mouse to engage in that kind of behavior then? Well, we think it's similar to kind of the positive hedonic effects that, that people experience um, that, you know, it, it feels good. Um, and another reason might be sort of relief of negative emotion. We know a lot of people drink to relieve stress. Mm-hmm. We can create models of that in animals as well, where if they're stressed or you know, there's something that causes anxiety, we, we could increase their drinking that way as well. Right. It's like, you know, taking the edge off of a long day where you've been poked and prodded all day. Yeah. <laughs> <Sometimes>. <laughs> and so the main goal for your work or for your research area is to kind of pick at differences between how male, re- male and female mice interact with uh, alcohol. Is that right? Yeah, that's something we've been really focused on recently. Um, and, and others before us, you know, have discovered that Um, female animals will drink more alcohol. And that's true across different types of drugs of abuse as well, where the females will usually consume more of these various drugs of abuse, and they will kind of show more signs of what we call addictive-like behavior. And so we've been kind of setting up our models of that. And then we're, you know, interested in exploring, like, what is it that leads to that difference? Um, You know, why are females drinking more? And what's, what's causing that vulnerability? Right. What's the kind of degree of difference between the females drinking more and the males drinking less? Like how much more are they drinking? That's a good question. It it sort of depends on the paradigm. So how are we giving the alcohol? Um, But in some paradigms up to, you know, twice the amount. Um, And one thing I'll say there too, is we're measuring that based on like how much they're drinking for their body weight. So if we actually looked at just total amount, we might see the females don't look like they're drinking as much, but we're normalizing that for the fact that the females are smaller. And if you do that, you know, it sometimes seems like up to, you know, twice the amount basically that, that males are drinking. Although there might be other paradigms where it's harder to see that. Um, okay. It kind of depends on how you set up the experiment. Yeah. And so, I mean, could you go through a couple of experiments? Because we don't usually have, uh, you know, scientists that are working with mice. So we don't really know, or we haven't really talked about on the podcast about mm-hmm. how you set these these paradigms or kind of, you know, study designs up for these mice. So so are there a couple of examples you could go through to, to kind of give our viewers an, an, uh, an idea? Sure. Yeah. So kind of the classic way, if you're looking at alcohol drinking is, you know, mice are housed in little what we call shoebox cages. So they're about the size of a shoebox. 
and they live on these racks in their colony room where there's all these mice lined up and they usually have between like two and four cage mates. Um, so one thing we could do is just put a bottle of alcohol on the cage and let everybody drink. Um, and that's maybe that idea you had of like, they're all drinking with their friends, right? <laughs> exactly. Um, <yeah. laughs> you know, a problem with that is then we don't really know who drank what, right? So we might have one mouse who really did most of the drinking and someone else who didn't drink anything. So what we typically do is we separate them out either for their, you know, all day and they have to be by themselves or maybe for part of the day just during the drinking session. And then we put a bottle on the cage and we can measure just straight, like how much of this fluid was gone between this time period and this time period and, and quantify that. Mm-hmm. And um, we can do that either for like 24 hours where we can say how much did they drink over the whole day? We can do you know more limited time periods. One um, model we use is called drinking in the dark and that's because mice are nocturnal. And so that's their awake time. And they, about three hours after the lights go off, that's when they're most active. And if you give them alcohol, then they will, that's when they'll kind of binge drink and they'll drink the most. Okay. Um, so that's it's like a happy hour. Drink. Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> like that's their time um, when they're going to drink the most. Um, so those are what we call like home cage drinking paradigms. And uh, we have other types of paradigms where we can, you know, put animals in a box where they have to actually respond. You know, if they, they press a lever three times, then they'll get a little drink and they can lap that up and then go earn another one, for example. Okay. Um, so there are a couple of different ways we can kind of make them work for it, which gives us additional things to look at besides just, well, how much did they drink? Now we can ask, well, how much work were they willing to do to get this? Right. Yeah. So you're kind of assessing motivation at that at that point too, right? So motivation to actually acquire a drink. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Which is mm-hmm. something we know is really dysregulated. Um, when people have an alcohol use disorder, they're willing to work a lot harder um, to get access to alcohol. And so that that's an important thing is to assess that motivation. And then we can also do things like punish the drinking. Um, and that's a model we use frequently because we also know that that people that are, you know, suffering from an alcohol use disorder are um, going to drink despite a lot of negative consequences, right? Like it's not doing good things once you've reached the point of an addiction, um, but people are still pursuing drugs. And so we're trying to model that in the animals as well by you know, making the alcohol taste really bad or giving them a foot shock when they get the alcohol, something that should discourage them. And then asking, well, why are they still going for that? And what are the neural mechanisms that are kind of causing that, that drive to seek it no matter what? Do, do the mice exhibit, like I, for, for some people, I imagine the hangover is, is a reason they wake up the next day and are like, oh my God, I can't do that again. Do mice exhibit the same sorts of behaviors? Like, do you see that afterwards after a binging session that they, they exhibit mm-hmm. sort of hungover like behaviors? Yeah. And we would characterize that as, you know, withdrawal behaviors, for example. Um, and mice do exhibit those as well. Um, so, you know, there's whole lines of work and people that are interested in kind of studying withdrawal from, from these drugs of abuse as well, and how they kind of interact with the motivation to, to seek drugs. Um, I have one question. It's, it may be a really stupid question. And so I apologize in advance. Um, are there differences between mice whenever they're socially drinking versus solo drinking? Are they more likely to drink when others are drinking? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, it's absolutely (laughs) true. And, um, we might think of that as like peer pressure, right? That you, well, you might be drinking because your friend is drinking. Yeah. Um, something we think about in the mice, though, is the stress of whether they're living with their friends or not. And so actually being housed alone can be very stressful for the animals. Um, and so we, 
as you know, behavioral neuroscientists tend to think of it more that way. Although there's also um, research suggesting that that mice will learn. You know, they'll they'll smell each other, for example, and be like, "Oh, you know, my friend over here drank that thing, and I'll try it out too." So um, there are certainly social influences in a number of ways in, in terms of what they're willing to consume. Okay. And there are sex differences in that as well. Um, you know, the stress of, of single housing um, can influence the whether animals drink more or less uh, in a sex dependent way. Let's get let's get back onto these sex differences because you're you you had specified that females are more likely to drink or consume more than than males. Can we talk a little bit more about why that might be or what's going on there? Right. Yeah. So one of the things that seems to be clear is that um, ovarian hormones and these sort of sex hormones that you might think of are are related to this behavior. And that's probably the clearest answer we have right now is that things like estrogen can um, promote drug seeking and alcohol drinking, um, whereas maybe like progesterone is more protective. Um, so in terms of you know, what we know about why females from a biological standpoint might be more vulnerable, that's about the clearest answer we have right now. And I wish we had a lot more answers, but the reality is this has been a neglected area of research. Um, and, you know, neuroscience has ignored studying female animals for a long time. And so that's one of our goals is to figure out, okay, well, what are those hormones doing? If estrogen is promoting drinking, why? What's the mechanism? And what else might be going on besides these ovarian hormones? It's neglected not only in neuroscience, but in a lot of other sciences as well up until recently, right? Mm -hmm. uh, because of estrogen or the hormones that females have, the, a lot of like a lot of testing or you know studies tend to neglect that and just look at males because it's quote unquote easier. Is that correct? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. And you know, I do think this has been a problem across a number of fields. Unfortunately for us as neuroscientists, some of the, the studies that have looked into this have shown that neuroscientists are the worst offenders. Oh, um, really? Okay. Yeah. And and even a, a recent study that came out, um, even this year has shown that, and, and it's actually interesting, mice do better than rats, but if you split it up by um, the species that you look at, um, in rats, more than half of the studies being done are still being done only in males. Um, it is better in, in mice with about 30%, I think it is, are still being done only in males. So, and that's in neuroscience specifically. Right. Um, so we still have a long way to go, I think, toward one, just studying females and, and two, in, you know, trying to understand the mechanisms of, of why there might be differences in behavior. Mm -hmm. No kidding. I mean, that's, that's a pretty significant discrepancy in terms of, of studies and, and the number that are exclusively male versus female or, or combined. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that you say that too, because I think there are a lot of parallels in psychological research. I know for myself, um, you know, when I, when, when we look at a sample that we collect out of our human subject pool, uh, it's often predominantly female. Uh, and that, and so we have this weird, this weird situation where a lot of the behavioral neuroscience is informing on you know, predominantly male or exclusively male samples, whereas the psychology side with human populations almost skews the opposite way, which is kind of weird. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think a really interesting question here, more or less, and Anna, you, you might have a lot of insight into this is, you know, if it's mainly estrogen, that's the issue here, whenever we're looking at females versus uh, male uh, mice or rats, or humans in general, why are scientists afraid to study this? And what's the issues that are inherently associated with that? Yeah, I think it's been this sort of misconception that 
having estrogen is going to make females, you know, quote unquote crazy, right? Which is where like mm -hmm. the bias comes in um, that, oh, females have hormones and male, this idea that somehow males are like more neutral. predictable. Well, yeah. Like, yeah. More yeah. consistent or whatever. Exactly. Um, yeah. And so, and then once you get into, you know, a way of doing things, you guys know this as scientists, like then you stick with that. Right. So mm -hmm. if, if the field was sort of founded on this idea of well, males are a default and they're easier and we'll just do that. You know, my early work, I was working in a lab too, where we only studied males. And so, and I just took that in, you know, that was the environment and that's what we did. And, um, I think it's, it's just taking time now for people to sort of change what they've been doing and to say, cause now we know, and there have been studies that support this, that there is not more variability in the females. Um, and you know, don't forget males have hormones too, right? It's kind of a common <laughs> refrain. They just have them in different levels um, and they're affected by different things. But but there's, you know, variability is part of science and it's part of our samples. And um, we can't just ignore um, or what might be a really important factor in some of the behaviors we're studying because we think it might be a little messy. Right. Yeah. And messy's kind of part of science, though. <laughs> Aren't people taking the cheap way out here? This is what science is all about. To get back to it, then, when we talk specifically about alcohol use disorder and and the differences in, in males and females, and, and what is the difference really between uh, sex hormones versus sex chromosomes in terms of vulnerability? Right. So that's something we're just starting to look into. Um, and, you know, as I mentioned before, that kind of the state of knowledge right now, what we already know is that it does seem like hormones play a role. And so, you know, females having ovaries, those are their gonads, right? Influences their alcohol drinking behavior and other um, types of reward seeking. Um, and we've kind of became interested in this question of, well, what about other things? You know, are, are there things besides the those ovarian hormones that might be important? So we have this mouse model, which we got from Dr. Art Arnold at UCLA that he sent us some mice very kindly. Um, and he developed this line where they have this dissociation between their gonadal sex and their chromosomal sex, right? So we normally think of, you know, females are X and males are Y, right? That's kind of the, the general um, way of thinking of that. And in, in this line of mice, we can have animals that are have a Y chromosome, but are gonadally female. And so they present as female and they have, you know, this female hormonal profile. Wow. So that's allowed us to do some experiments where we can start to ask, hey, what might the chromosomes be doing? There's all these other genes besides the ones that determine what um, gonads you have. And what might some of those genes be doing? And I don't have actually answers on what genes might be involved yet, but we, we do have evidence that um, it is more than, than just the gonads and that um, the chromosome, you know, this X versus Y and all the other genes on those chromosomes are also influencing this um, alcohol preference in these animals. What's going on with these chromosomes and hormones to like that you would think they'd be interacting or not really interacting to lead to different outcomes in drinking? Like I'm just, it's so foreign to me to think of it this way. Right. So, so one thing you have to know is that what determines the gonadal sex of anybody is the mm -hmm. presence of this gene called the sex determining region Y. So SRY. Okay. So this is one gene. It's on the Y chromosome. So um, if you have this, maybe you guys do. It would be active during a certain time in development, and then that will, um, you know, influence your development to develop testes and become, you know, phenotypically male. Right. If you don't, and then, have and, then and then your body would produce, pre presumably, it would produce 
testosterone or the male, male, male hormones, right? Right. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you have testes, you're going to produce male levels of hormones, and there are certain critical periods where those hormones are going to basically kind of shape you toward a male phenotype. Mm. Um, if you're if you don't have that gene, so you're you're negative for SRY, then you're going to go down the path to be phenotypically female and develop ovaries. So um, what's happened in this line of mice is that this one gene, SRY, has been removed from the Y chromosome and put on a different chromosome. So it's been dissociated from all the other genes that normally move with it, right? Like you have Y, so you have this SRY and you have some other things that are on the Y chromosome. And so to, to figure out how those might be separate, we've moved this SRY gene to some other chromosome so that we can still have it be expressed and animals can be phenotypically male. But now we can have phenotypically male with male gonads with a Y chromosome or with an X chromosome. We have XX, but they you know have testes and we have XY and they have testes. And then we have XX and they have ovaries and XY and they have ovaries. Okay, cool. Because that, that actually completely filled me in on what the heck was going on with chromosomes and hormones. <laughs> so Anna, maybe you can give us a, a quick crash course because I'm always curious about what other lab spaces look like. What does a mouse lab like yours or what does a mouse bar look like? <laughs> yeah, it's not as exciting as you might think. Um, <laughs> but, Is there a jukebox or, or <laughs> pool table? No, we try to be really quiet. And um, <laughs> well, we have our mice back in the, the colony room and they all live in these little cages that are lined up on shelves. And... Um, that's about it. And then we give them bottles of alcohol. Um, the one fun thing that we do have is because we, we often give them alcohol in the dark because they will drink more in the dark. Um, we do have them on a reverse light cycle. So it's um, right now their lights are off and it's their nighttime. Um, so we have some red lights in, turned on in those rooms because um, they can't see red light. And so we can get in there and see what we need to do under the red light, but it's still dark for them. And so that does kind of give it like a, a cool ambiance if you go in there and it's all glowing red and, um, but mostly it's, it's just <laughs> cages with, um, with alcohol bottles on there. And then, you know, we're doing really simple things. We weigh the bottle before and we weigh the bottle after, and we see how much they drank. That's the kind of the most basic, um, setup that we have. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so with this, uh, Anna, what are the like implications of the work that you're doing? Like, how would you describe what your, you know, primary implications are so like direct implications of this work with the mice and maybe future implications for this kind of work yeah i think the the implications are you know informing one what we understand about vulnerability for alcohol drinking and and addiction in general right so mm -hmm. you know it's not intuitive to people that females are more vulnerable to these um types of behaviors because we don't necessarily see that in humans um, because in humans we can't distill down these biological influences we have all these other things like the effect of society and culture so you know males you know, men actually drink more than women and are more likely to have an alcohol use disorder but that's in many ways affected by the fact that it's more acceptable for men to drink for example and historically has you know not at all been acceptable for women to, to drink or use drugs and as that's become more acceptable for women, we are actually seeing the rates of these kinds of issues um, come closer together between men and women. Right. So I think one of it is just being able to distill down these biological influences and, and have a model to study that in. 
Um, and then we hope in the long term that, you know, understanding mechanisms of vulnerability for addiction could help us uncover, you know, targets and things that we could use, um, you know, and, and as possible treatments to, to aid in therapies, because, you know, in addiction right now, we really don't have good treatments um, and we really are lacking um, in, in terms of things that can help people in that area. Hmm. What, uh, what kind of things are the, what are the approaches to reduce addiction to substances that you think are needing more improvement? Right. I think that, you know, the good news is we have, we do have treatments and one of the problems is lack of access. So I think we have to recognize that. And and my work doesn't speak to that, but it's important to, to recognize that people can get help. So if people need help, they shouldn't feel like there's nothing to be done. There, there are things that can be done. Um, but the treatments we have right now, you know, are, there might be behaviorally focused, which is mm-hmm. good. Um, or we have various pharmaceuticals that kind of mimic the drug itself, right? So if you're an opioid addict, maybe you can take methadone, which is a long acting opioid. Um, we have similar things for nicotine or other things like that. Um, but I think what we really need is to get to a, a place where we can undo some of the damage that drugs do to the brain. So we know that alcohol and other drugs, they change brain circuits. And if we can figure out what those changes are, then we maybe in the future we'll have the ability to kind of undo some of that um, and and kind of turn back some of, of what's happened in addiction. Right. Absolutely. I, I'm curious. Uh, every parent I've ever met in my life has said that drinking alcohol will kill your brain cells. <laughs> is, that a, is that fair to say? Is that actually true or no? <laughs> well, alcohol turns off your brain cells is, is uh, maybe a way to think about it. Um, okay. Uh, so it's, you know, one thing it's doing, although alcohol is what we call like a messy drug, it does a lot of things. One thing it does is um, increases that inhibitory transmission in the brain. And so it's turning off neural circuitry. And that's one reason, you know, you've heard it called the depressant. Right. Um, or if you drink too much, like you're going to pass out because your brain's being turned off. Um, and it does change the circuits, like with repeated drinking, repeated exposure, you're going to get changes in motivational circuits and stress-related circuits that'll alter the brain. And that's where we start to get to, you know, addiction. And then we have uncontrollable craving and seeking of, of drugs. Um, so it absolutely changes the brain. And, and, you know, the younger you are, the more vulnerable you are to that as well, I think. Absolutely. Honestly, I think that's even an even scarier, like, you know, not like it's a forewarning, right? To say that it, drinking excessively can change the circuitry of your brain, not kill brain cells. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess killing like, just having the word kill just scares children immediately. Right. And that's probably why adults have used this for so long. But I, I really do like that insight. So that it's basically shutting the brain down temporarily, but also long term, it can be changing the circuitry. Yeah, exactly. And And if that's happening on top of some biological vulnerability you already have or combined with some sort of stressor in your environment or when you're very young, you know, in adolescence, then we see those changes are even exacerbated and then we, we have a heightened risk of, you know, drug seeking getting out of control and then we're talking about addiction and alcohol use disorder. Absolutely. Really cool. Really interesting. Yeah, Anna, this, I think we've all, we've in many ways almost talked about at least one, but what are some other myths or misconceptions that are prevalent in this field? Or ones that you might want to dispel? Um, (laughs) 
Well, if we go back to the sex differences um, discussion, mm -hmm. you know, I think some of that you guys already touched on and asked about um, with, you know, females being more variable. And another one I think has to do with this idea of uh, in mice, we have the estrus cycle and, in, you know, in, in humans, that's the menstrual cycle, right? This kind of um, cyclical fluctuation in hormones. I think there's also this sort of misconception among researchers that, you know, that's going to be a big source of variability. Um, and that that's one of the reasons you, you can't study females, or if you do, you always have to look at the cycle, you know, and I think it, it, I would argue if you're not studying the cycle, you don't have to necessarily look at it. You know, we can absorb some variability in our, in our studies, but, um, you know, there are other times when it's valid and warranted. And then that is something you would want to study. Yeah. I, I think that's a great point for sure. Great. Uh, Anna, thank you so much for joining us on the program today. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to talk about this and uh, be a part of this. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we, we really enjoyed having you on. Yeah. All right. Uh, for everybody, that's it for today. Another episode in the books. Uh, follow BrainBuzz on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Subscribe to our newsletter at brainbuzzpodcast.com and join us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at BrainBuzzPod. Until next time, cheers. Cheers. Cheers.